Hi, I'm Karen Derricades, and you're listening to We Make Media, a podcast about how the culture we produce shapes media and how that goes both ways. I'm here with Paul Darvasi, an educator and game designer whose work explores educational technology, instructional environments, gamification, and game-based learning. He's used video games with high school students in media literacy and English literature contexts. He has a master's in educational technology from the University of British Columbia and a PhD in the same from York University. He co-designed Blind Protocol, an alternative reality game to instruct high school students on privacy and surveillance, and is here to talk with me today about the role of gaming in the future of education and how the use of video games in the classroom fosters critical thinking and supports media literacy learning. Hi, Paul. How are you doing? Great. Thanks for having me on today. So maybe we can just, uh, maybe you can get started by uh, explaining what you mean when you say you create immersive, narrative-driven, pervasive, and alternative reality games. What does that entail? So uh, I I went down, or I started down this path uh, about 10 years ago um, when I designed a game for my high school students based around Ken Kesey's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which I now call the Ward Game, and I ran it for four years. I guess the vision behind it was a a very compelling idea that I had been entertaining for a very long time is what would it look like to play a video game in the real world, to take the actions and mechanics that are, you know, currently within a screen and to externalize them out into the real world. So um, because the narrative of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is is very systemic and, and playful and contained in one area and very much reflected uh, many of the kind of dynamics that I that I see at my school, I felt that it was a perfect narrative form to externalize into a game. So essentially what I created was a, an immersive event where my students were living in the world of the asylum for one month. Um, I included propaganda videos. There'd be missions that would set, be sent through emails. And I tried to take as many of what are called game mechanics or the, the aspects of games that allow for players to interact with the game itself and to try to put them at play using tools that, you know, from the internet, free email servers, websites, uh, all kinds of things that anybody could use themselves and, and in order to engage my students. I had propaganda videos. Uh, they'd be spying on each other. And, and it was remarkable to see how, how it completely altered the, the style and dynamic of a typical classroom. Uh, it empowered my students. We used social media, all kinds of different tools to keep them in this kind of world of the game, even when they were at home. And how what we ended up doing was replicating the narrative trajectory of the novel, but actually living it and playing it as well as reading it, which brought home many of the themes and ideas. And once this this game started gathering momentum and I started refining how to deliver it over the four years, I started learning a lot about the power of not just, you know, sort of playing games on the screen, but how we can externalize games and play sort of, you know, these, these immersive games in real life. So it it was in 2012, I believe, when I launched the first version of it. And it was what I call my rough draft. A a lot of it I was making up as I went along. But it was a remarkable event. So what it would look like for the students is nobody would be doing the same thing. And nobody would really know what anybody else was doing. Uh, It was it was. And what it ended up happening was uh, it very genuinely started creating the same low level paranoid environment that we find in the novel. And and there are institutional 
uh, coincidences between the way that the asylum was represented in the novel and the functions of any school. I mean, my school's great and the kids have a good time there, but there's a certain uniformity, a certain sort of punitive structure, a certain authoritarian structure, all the things that I think characterize the worst parts of education that Kesey was criticizing in the novel. And in many ways, what this game was, was not only a fun and immersive way to involve my students in the material, but it also was a critique of the education system that they'd experienced up until that point, built in. I think I, I don't think everybody was aware of that was that, that was a big part of it, but I certainly was. Um, so one of the ways that we differentiate the experiences of the of the players is they don't actually have to do anything in the sense that they're building up to 100 points. I, I use that, that basic structure and they can build to that point structure any way they want. They're empowered to build to that any way they want. And what I did is I created a, one of the main mechanics of the game was what I would call the prescription system. And at any point, a student can write the big nurse. The big nurse is kind of the overlord of the whole world of the game. And uh, the big nurse only appears in propaganda videos, never makes you know appearances. And if you were to look up my name on Google, you will find these very disturbing images of this kind of like nurse with a five o'clock shadow and misapplied lipstick and uh, this very scary individual. So you were creating all of the content, all of the content pieces you were recording yourself, yeah. Yes, but never deviating too far from the novel. Whenever I was short of an idea or I needed to add something, the novel gave me all of my answers. So everything that happened throughout the game, all the references, all the tidbits, even a lot of the mechanics were actually derived from the actual dynamics and functions from the novel. So, um, so what, ha what would happen was you're a student and I would have a whole range of different prescription categories. So it could be fine art, it could be medicine, it could be creative writing, it could be music, it could be film, it could be photography. And um, a player would write the big nurse and say, I want a photography mission. So they would be sent a mission, you know, very colorful with a reward structure uh, and what they would get and the time limit. It wasn't weeks or days, it was hours. You'd have 72 hours, 96 hours to complete it. And they would have the option to accept or reject the prescription that was sent to them, right? So if they didn't like the photography uh, you know, prescription they received, they could reject it and request another one until they finally found something that they were interested in doing. And that's what they would do on the timer that they had. So you could understand by this system, one, it's incredibly empowering because each player can address the issues and ideas that are being forwarded by the novel in a way that's meaningful to them. Uh, it's incredibly creative because everybody is actually producing different artifacts based on the missions they chose. And one of the things that I did is obviously what you may start realizing is, wow, there must have been a lot of missions for them to have the opportunity to keep asking for more or delving into categories that range from medicine to law to creative writing. So over the course of the four years, if um, a player were to pursue a particularly mission line, for example, you keep asking for law missions, you're interested in law, and all of the missions all tied to the novel directly or indirectly, and you were to fulfill all the law missions, the final law mission or prescription would be design a new prescription for law that's related to the novel. So what that would do is it would enlist the players to keep adding to the database of possible prescriptions. So over the four years, my, my initial kind of database of let's say 70 grew to over 200 based on, on the ones that were being created and generated by my players' students as they were going. And, and, what, that, and what, what surprised me about it and really speaks to what, how you can engage students meaningfully is that I thought 
definitely there's going to be a few hackers in the group that are going to keep spam rejecting the prescriptions. It's like, nope, 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 to see what the bottom of this kind of prescription pool would be. Like, at what point are there no more prescriptions? But what I realized is that never happened and rarely did anybody go beyond requesting a third mission because they were so excited to do what was being offered through that kind of self-directed path that they didn't want to lose the opportunity to get the mission that or the prescription that they were offered and therefore would take it for fear of losing it if they keep rejecting it and moving down the chain. So it really, and what it did is that it really invested them in the work. And the other part that was very empowering for them is this wasn't homework or assignments that had you know a universal deadline. They could do absolutely nothing for a week and there'd be no problem. They just wouldn't get any points. But then after a week, when they had a little bit of free time, they could start requesting prescriptions. And what a lot of my students did is that they would muscle through three or four prescriptions in a week, rack up points. And then you know while they had to focus on another subject, they would kind of quiet down a little bit and wait for the others. And keep in mind, this mechanic, this prescription mechanic is one of over 20 to 25 mechanics that were simultaneously being deployed in the game. So there wasn't the only way you could earn points. I mean, you could earn points by all kinds of other activities that were being that were being produced and even made up and, and tailored to the individual students. So it was a huge thing to manage. And it really pushed me to the absolute limit emotionally, you know, mentally, uh, everything. <laughs> yeah, no good deed in, in, in experimental education, right? No good deed goes unpunished. But yeah. well, that, well, that's it, right? Uh, but what was amazing is it worked. <laughs> it was, it was these, you have to keep in mind, these are seniors in their last month of school. And that's why I did it in that last month of school, because this is when they are thoroughly disengaged. This is when they're in the peak of senioritis. This is where uh, they typically have been accepted to university. They have quite a margin of, of error in order of, uh, you know, to still maintain their, their offer. Um, and, and, and what was remarkable, and many didn't even realize, is that they ended up producing more and better quality work in the system than they did the whole year do it under a more traditional system. Um, and and they they it was remarkable the 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 level of engagement the level of of the the quality of the work that they were producing considering the context of the time of year and what was going on so um, I wouldn't think that something like this would work permanently and all the time but I think what it speaks to is the value in creating a repertoire of strategies to keep students engaged. Right. I, I don't think games are a magic bullet. I just think it's an important tool to add to the mix. And, and one thing that was very powerful about the word game, and it really was in many ways, the, the you know, it was transformative for me as well as, as many of the students involved. Um, what was very powerful is that it, it really brought to light that school is a system. And a school can be conceived of or framed as a very bad game, right? You, you level up from grade to grade. You have your kind of exam boss fights at the end of the year. You get your points in the form of grades. All of these, you know, and, and, and but it, it's very kind of universal and systematic and doesn't give a, you know, typically uh, students aren't empowered in that system. And what the word game was, was essentially hacking the system, offering a very different dynamic where many of those elements that characterize traditional school are still at play. However, they've been kind of grafted with these kind of you know, system elements from the game world. And just by altering the context and the system in which they learn and in which they, they undertake their various activities, 
their level of engagement, their level of interest, their investment in what was going on went through the roof. And that content that they generated as users uh, in that in those iterations were they then used in in future iterations. So they were actually the curriculum was students populated or, or yes, amazing. Absolutely. Yeah. And and here's here's an example of how the, the content that they produced, I wanted not just, to, you know, in the example of their producing prescriptions and then my using those prescriptions in the future, whenever I could take an artifact that they developed and redeploy it back into the game, either as, for example, posters, warning, warning players to remember to keep quiet about the game. One student would be given the mission to create the poster, and then that poster would appear all over the school because another student was given the mission to, to put those posters up. They may not have even known who created the poster. They were just given a copy of the poster and said, make sure that when I arrive to school on Monday morning, these posters are visible all over the school. And, and one of the best examples, one of my favorite examples of how I, I created a dialogue between these various artifacts is that one, uh, one of my students was granted the mission or chose the mission rather to create a floor plan of the asylum as it's described in the novel. So they had to read very carefully to kind of understand the relationship between the different rooms and spaces in the asylum. And they came up with this brilliant floor plan that actually is very, you know, very likely very close to what Kesey had envisioned the floor plan of this hospital in Oregon might have looked like. So he submitted that, got his points and went off on his merry way. Another student took a mission where they would write a song about one of the main characters, a, a character named Broom Bromden or Chief Bromden. And he wrote this absolutely spectacular, beautiful song about Chief Bromden. I didn't even know this kid was musical. And, and he just produced this over-the-top piece of music about the main character that really dug into the main sort of most salient characteristics of this character. And then another another student uh, chose a Minecraft option where they they were they were to take a Minecraft build. And what he, the mission was is, I give that kid a floor plan, and I give that kid a song, and he has to build that floor plan on Minecraft. And therefore, the floor plan is of course the one that my other student had produced. And then he's got to take me on a video tour of the asylum with that music as background. So the final product is a video walkthrough of the asylum as built on Minecraft. But he didn't know that the, that the floor plan came from X student or that the song came from X student. He was just given these resources and then he built this unbelievable Minecraft model and then you can imagine the surprise and delight when the other two students saw their floor plan and their song come to life in this kind of composite Minecraft piece. And that that activated those different elements together into, you know, into one cohesive structure in the end. So whenever I could do stuff like that, I would try. Wow, that sounds just absolutely amazing, just as fascinating. What what was the what was the response from colleagues? Yeah, so that, this is really interesting and, and really drives to the heart of, of, of some of the more uh, problematic elements of this game is that so in the novel, uh, if uh, the, the, the nurse, Nurse Ratched, who currently has a, her own Netflix series, I was very excited to see that uh, uh, the she encourages the patient to rat each other out. So, for example, if somebody is confessing to some kind of a dream they had, which they haven't publicly confessed to in the therapy circle, she encourages 
uh, the other patients to let her know so she gets really to, to the bottom of the pathology of these particular patients, right? And so, and she rewards patients for ratting each other out. Mm. So we incorporated a similar mechanic where um, you were not, you know, in a very Fight Club-esque sort of style. Nobody was allowed to talk about the game at all unless you were in an authorized space or with an authorized person. Um, and so what would happen was that, uh, that if you were caught talking about the game, the person who caught you would receive a point reward. So they're getting grades for ratting each other out. And they are, or you would lose points if you were caught by somebody discussing the game. And you wonder, well, how would they catch each other? Well, for example, I could have my iPhone recording and I'm saying, hey, did you play the game yesterday? And the individual would say, oh, yes, yes, yes. He's therefore caught talking about the game. And I say he because I only teach boys. Um, and uh, this then would have an impact on the point system. And what would happen is when they were initially told not to discuss the game, they didn't take it very seriously. And then a few recordings, screenshots, whatever the case may be, would be funneled to the forum in which the stuff was being processed. And then therefore, uh, warnings were sent out very quickly, and you could feel a palpable change in the atmosphere where the paranoia would set in, where nobody wanted to talk about it. The deeper problem here is, is that there, this could create conflict between students, right? Like you ratted me out, this is an effect on my grade, et cetera, et cetera. But the truth of the matter was, we went to great lengths to protect the identity of the person releasing the information. And in the end, nobody ever really lost points because you'd get several warnings and a warning was usually enough. So there wasn't really a significant impact on the person. But what it did do is it really turned it into a very elaborate sort of paranoid system, which very much reflected the novel. So that lack of conversation, which would happen very soon after the game started, and it, it really worked well all four years, kept the game largely hidden from anybody who wasn't aware of it going on. And it was very much an iceberg where the game would, would have some visible manifestations. Yes, a few posters would go up on the wall or you, you'd hear murmurs about something strange going on, but nobody had any idea about the depth of what was happening under their noses. One of the, uh, one of the advantages of the silo, the, way, the silo ways that high school... Work, right. Well, exactly. Um, I do want to talk about um, how you work in a boys' school in the context of um, of some of the potential critiques, if not within your school uh, in general. Obviously, there's a lot of attitudes towards video games and young people. Period. Um, even more so mm -hmm. in a gendered context of masculinity or social skills, or um, mm -hmm. and then concerns um, valid and and paranoid about uh, young people. And, and, and how these things affect their brains or their, their behavior. So uh, there's always been sort of a, a, a conflict between schools and video games. There have been for a long time. I think that's softening now. I think increasingly we are accepting that we are living in this world of you know, digital everything, interactive media, participatory culture. A lot more, you know, we have more and more young teachers coming in the system who do, did grow up in that world and, are, and see the value in using interactive digital material. In my particular experience, I in my first ventures into using commercial video games in classes were very kind of nurturing type games. They weren't, you know, you know, one of them was Gone Home, an absolutely beautiful game about a young woman who goes back 
and and kind of snoops around her house where the, you know she's been away from for over a year and discovers all of these family secrets. So it's a very intimate family story that's told in the form of a video game. And I think that when I start the school year and I explain to parents that you know what the game is about, they 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 trust me that you know that there's value to it, and I'm, I'm I think I'm fairly persuasive in letting them know the value of this type of experience. But then it becomes more interesting, you know, where I have used benign games like What Remains of Edith Finch and Her Story and and Gone Home, and they're they're you know they're they're games that absolutely, without a doubt, have a place in a classroom. And anybody who has played these games or would would look at my instructional strategies around it wouldn't doubt the value of including them. But my doctoral work was based on using Grand Theft Auto V in the classroom, and that on the surface would seem like one of, you know, one of the most, well, it is, it's the most controversial game in history, according to the Guinness Book of World Records. And immediately you would think, well, why on earth is this guy exposing my children to, you know, the most controversial, violent, sexist, misogynist, arguably racist, I mean, all of these things. Um, And what would be the value? I mean, you'd think I was doing it for shock value or to garner... Uh, you know, favor or or popularity from my students as the GTA teacher. But um, I would argue it's actually crucial that we address games like Grand Theft Auto V, because the reality of Grand Theft Auto V in particular is there are currently 130 million copies in circulation. It is the third best-selling video game of all time, largely targeting adolescent white males. They will spend as little as 120 hours playing and as much as 5,000 hours playing on uh, the online version. Uh, It has been called, the franchise has been called a cornerstone of youth culture. So we have a legion of adolescents entering this persuasive photorealistic space where all kinds of of, socially problematic uh, activities are taking place and we give them absolutely no critical framework to process what is going on. We don't actually understand how they're processing it because there's absolutely no research based on how the, you know they're being affected by it. And I'm just looking at Grand Theft Auto V because it's big enough to warrant not video games in general, but this video game has, has a disproportionate hold on the minds and hearts of our youth, particularly boys. Um, and in which case it's an ob- becomes an obligation for, 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 for educators and, and adults in general to, to better understand. Yeah. Well, that's my argument. So in, in, my, in my research, what happened was I had, you know, the, the, the participants in my study, the students that played were all 17 or 18 year old white adolescent males all who had a history with the game, and and many of whom who'd played it right through. Some There was only one participant who hadn't played the, the fifth edition to the franchise, but had played previous versions of the game. And what we did is for a month, they played at home. I would give them readings around gender, race, violence, and political ideology, they would, uh, I enlisted them as co-researchers 
in order to create autoethnographies about their own gameplay so that they would go into the game, they would play, and they would process, for example, representations of black men as based on the article that we'd read and describe how they played as a black character in the game or how they perceived a black neighborhood in the game as they went in. And remember, these are white adolescent boys that have very little contact with real lived black experiences, but they're very drawn to that life through hip hop. They are also the biggest consumers of hip hop in the world. I can tell you that universally, all of my participants were very invested in hip hop. And as a result, they, they have ideas about black lives and black culture that are only generated through the media. And this creates an imaginary, a view of what blackness is that is very limited and limiting. And to have conversations about this in the abstract will make some progress in terms of their questioning and interrogating their own views and beliefs based on media. But because this culminates so fully in a game like Grand Theft Auto V that has an enormously negative uh, representation of black life and in many ways deliberately draws the way that it represents black life from hip hop videos as represented in hip hop inside of the game. Grand Theft Auto V deliberately designed the game knowing that its core audience, white adolescent males, are huge consumers of hip hop. And the interesting thing about hip hop is more than any other musical genre, it is very much steeped in place. Because as a hip hop artist, part of your credibility is where you come from and, and the, the life that you lead in these problematic neighborhoods that you come from, or they're presented as problematic because that gives you more credibility. So an adolescent that consumes hip hop, they can learn the lyrics of the songs, they can wear the clothes, they can use the jargon, but they actually can't enter the neighborhood because they feel I'm white and if I go into one of these neighborhoods, I'm not going to be accepted there. But they feel in some ways incomplete because so much of the seduction that the songs draw them to are the lived experiences in these neighborhoods. So what Grand Theft Auto V has done is it's given them a virtual version of the neighborhood, which perfectly corresponds to how it's represented by hip hop so that the fantasy, the hip hop fantasy can be complete by their playing, for example, a gangster in a South Los Angeles neighborhood and, and living that life in, in a neighborhood which actually poorly represents South Los Angeles because it's not representing South Los Angeles, it's representing how South Central LA is represented in the media. And what we have then is 150 plus young minds who are reinforcing these ideas of race and place without interrogation, right? And without thinking about it, without really understanding what are the historical circumstances that cause black communities to be put in this situation? What is the complicity of the larger white world and their, um, their denying mortgages, denying entry into certain neighborhoods, uh, creating a system of incarceration that disproportionately affects black males, destroying families, destroying futures, and destroying 
destroying lives that create this, these negative circumstances. All those questions and considerations are wholly absent from the game. All you're seeing is an end result, and what it does is it naturalizes black lives to these lifestyles and neighborhoods, like making it seem, oh yeah, it's completely normal for a black person to live in a ghetto and for dad not to be at home, right? So, but these questions are best addressed at the source. And by taking them to where these ideas are being generated, particularly in this case, Grand Theft Auto V, in my particular study. And reinforced and cemented in their own belief system, yeah. Exactly, you nailed it, that's exactly right. And then having them unpack that through a program of critical media literacy, where they're thinking about an understanding, not just related to race, I mean, the representation of women is arguably worse right, than, than, than the way that race, there, there are some kind of ironic redemptive elements about the way they represent race. Because the other thing about, that makes Grand Theft Auto V even more complicated is that it's actually all ironic. What it's purporting to say is, hey, this is how black people are represented in the media. Isn't that ridiculous? Except for they don't give you enough of that kind of clue at the irony so that the average player is taking it at face value. So a huge part of the discussions we had with my students is, is really unpacking that irony and unpacking the successes and failures of that irony and unpacking their own assumptions about blackness and their own lack of, of lived knowledge about people of color and how they conceive of these ideas based entirely on media. And they're living in media bubbles. You know, one of the conclusions that I arrived at in my dissertation was that they don't live with media, they live in media. And this is their environment, and we are doing very little at schools in order to address the reality of this hallucin you know, hallucinogenic labyrinth that they're encapsulated in, right? Yeah. Um, well, and it's so important they understand how these media is constructed. You know? Right. The, the, the adults barely understand, right? It's all moving so quickly that, that we're being left behind. And the other thing, too, is even, you know, if the smart or because the, the, the gamer communities are, are very sophisticated and a lot of, you know, there's Reddit threads that talk about the irony of GTA 5 and that a lot of these players would go on and learn that. But, OK, you understand it's ironic and you keep playing. And you keep playing and you keep reinforcing the ideas with a little kind of subtle thing about its irony in the back of your mind. But the, the game is not so consistently ironic to salvage itself, right? Like it, it's selectively ironic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's still much more time where you're actually embodying those attitudes and having them reinforced than there are moments of like right. wink, wink, saying, hey, right. you know, this exactly. is all a joke, so, right? So what we arrive at is a really interesting situation where, you know, when we started this conversation, I very kind of, I dropped this bomb that I, I used the world's most controversial video game in my class. And it seemed like, oh, okay, that's a bit odd and, and perhaps scandalous. Mm. But when we start thinking about what that is, you realize it's actually essential. <laughs> it's crucial. You have to meet them where they're at. You have to actually talk to them about. No, and, and I think it has a similar, a similar sort of uh, reincarnation is what sex education would have been in the 1930s, like where we're completely ignoring it mm. and, and, and hoping that it'll go away. And in some ways doing a huge disservice to, to our youth and to our, to our society. It's similar. It's exactly, I mean, we, th this is what is going on. There's no getting around it. You know, we have 130 million copies of this thing in circulation. That's like half the population of the U S right. Um, and, and for schools to pretend it's not going on is irresponsible. And the last thing is you don't have to have your students play GTA 5 to address these issues. It could be something like, 
for those that do, do a gender analysis, do a race analysis. If you've already played the game and it's part of your life, that way you're not imposing it on people who aren't. You're not onboarding new people who are right. exactly. <laughs> like exactly. willfully chosen not to participate in That's this culture. Right. And you're perfect because you talked about Gone Home and some of the educational games that are not a tough sell at all uh, in an educational context. But I want to talk about uh, just that threshold, what you've observed in terms of that threshold for young people. At what point people are like, oh, you're trying to make a game, but it's still a class. So Perfect. I don't, yeah. yeah. You are speaking my language. You're speaking my language. So uh, a few things. What we call educational games, which are typically not very good, entertaining, and obviously students will only slightly enjoy them because it's better than business as usual, but they certainly are not going to stay up till four o'clock in the morning playing these educational games on their own time. Because of that, and by the way, we call that chocolate-covered broccoli, um, the, the, the thrust of my trajectory has actually been not to use games that were deliberately instrumentalized for education, but to use commercial video games, largely indie games actually, that I felt could be contextualized with instructional material to make them educational. Um, you know, it, the, the example I like to use is Shakespeare didn't write plays for schools. He just wrote the best plays he could, and therefore they made sense to use in schools because of the richness and the power of, of their narrative and all the beautiful things that make Shakespeare Shakespeare. Similarly, I prefer to use the best games out there, commercial or otherwise, uh, and because of the richness that they offer in terms of character, in terms of setting, in terms of the mechanics that they choose, rather than turning to games that were deliberately made for education. Now, increasingly, that camp, the, you know, educational games are getting much better as there's bleeding over between the commercial video game industry and the educational video game industry. Um, and the nice halfway point is a genre called serious games. Serious games have a bit of, you know, they usually are, are involved with social issues or pedagogical, you know, their pedagogical objectives, but they tend to resemble what we would consider a commercial video game. Uh, you know, things like 1979 Revolution Black Friday about the Iranian Revolution or um, an, another one that basically is about the Bosnian War. So these are very powerful games that are genuinely engaging and fun in their own right. But then, you know, you also can, can, can contextualize a game um, for, to, to meet learning objectives. And, and one of the most important things is context in the sense that you can take a game that is incredibly rich and has a lot to offer in terms of learning, but a student may just be kind of spamming through it or a player may be spamming through it just to reach the end goal without really savoring the characters or savoring the atmosphere. You're just kind of trying to game the system to figure out how to beat the game without taking in some of the, the, the learning possibilities within the game. And that the, the way to draw students into you know, some kind of a learning objective is how you contextualize the gameplay, the kinds of activities, assessments, uh, the, the way you prepare them to think about the game before you go into it, act, you know, activities they can take place that they can undertake while they're playing. All of these then ensure that at least some learning is going on and, and directed towards whatever the objectives of the teacher may be. Very interesting. Yeah, no. And so, yeah, you're basically using it as another text, like as another material. Bingo. Yeah. Bingo. As opposed to trying to put the curriculum in a gamey way. I wanted to ask you about augmented reality gaming because mm -hmm. it's the difference between, you know, a choose your own adventure novel and a novel novel. 
you know, an open-ended game versus a closed narrative, mm -hmm. right? Like virtual reality is a complete story, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, all the elements must be there from a creator and designer perspective for the user. Whereas augmented reality is much more immersive and interactive in mm -hmm. the sense that it is, it's not an enclosed system, not everything mm -hmm. is decided, depending on how the user interacts with it is going to change uh, the experience. So can you talk a little bit about what augmented reality gaming even is? Right. So uh, th this actually touches into, you know, my original venture into the Grand Theft Auto 5 space is that I'm very, very interested in how we can use urban spaces for learning. And my draw to GTA 5 is because it reproduces fairly faithfully, at least in how it's represented in the media, the city of Los Angeles. It creates a virtual urban space. Uh, and I wanted to understand how young people moved in that urban space. And that was very, very early in my first steps in, and then it transformed into what I discussed earlier. So um, my, my current interest, and one that I've explored through another game design project that I did with my students, is how to use existing physical urban spaces and to send our students out into the community and, and create games and in immersive experiences. And the best way to do that is with augmented reality. So um, I, in fact, I see far more potential and a bigger future for augmented reality than I do for virtual reality. Um, and, and the power of... The, the power of augmented reality is the ability to layer digital information onto physical spaces. So what that means is I can set up, you know, uh, 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 an experience in my neighborhood where I send my students out, you know, obviously within safe parameters where they're not running across the street or that type of thing. And that's one of the bigger problems to address when we're looking at kind of urban games is how we keep our students safe um, while also allowing them to access the real world and in a more dynamic kind of learning environment and, and to take learning outside of the classroom into the, the world, uh, you know, that, that contextualizes their schools and homes. Pokemon Go is really the Bible for all, when people think of, of, of right. that, right? Well, that's it. Yeah, there were, there were a lot of safety concerns around Pokemon. I think a few people died going off cliffs and stuff like that while they were looking at their phone and there was a few stories of those. But yes, so you're, you're dead on. But what I'd like to think is not that Pokemon Go is the Bible, it's actually the preliminary pamphlet and that the Bible is coming, right? In, right. in the sense that, because Pokemon Go is 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 a fun, it's you know, it's a fun and capricious game. But I wouldn't call it a good game. It's more of a you know, collecting people and putting them to fight. But what I found most compelling about Pokemon Go is how it transformed the use of our urban spaces. How all of a sudden, you know, people were discovering parts of their neighborhood they didn't even know existed, where we'd see a group of people socializing in spaces that they would normally not socialize in or meet because of this game. So what it really indicated that if you have the right augmented reality system, you can absolutely transform social dynamics in an urban space. So building on that kind of template that Pokemon Go has, but where you have a deliberate instructional objective. So for example, you're, you're layering in augmented reality of, you know, some historical figure's ghost or revealing a hidden river that used to be, you know, that is now a sewer or, um, or having them, you know, gathering artifacts in a neighborhood that are digitally embedded in various areas. And these artifacts have some type of meaning, um, having short films available at certain sites that they can access or interact with 
solving puzzles at locations that reveal new locations to take them to. And all of a sudden, what you've done is you've created an incredibly powerful and rich learning environment that's superimposed on the physical space or in, in any physical space. It doesn't even have to be urban. And what's exciting about that is you can have multiple layers of experience into one physical space. So one could be kind of a pure entertainment thing that has nothing to do with school. Another one could be educational. And they all of these layers can exist simultaneously because they're all digital. They actually don't take up physical space. And you can change the channel on your augmented reality tool, which is currently, of course, our phones, but later will be glasses that will be far less intrusive and more immersive and, and, and have completely unique experiences that, are, that, that have something to do with the physical environment you're in, but augmented, obviously, through the rich digital material that's being presented there. Certainly in education, which is in a bit of a predicament, global predicament right now, how to access the power of the spatial web, how to let, uh, you know, be freed from the shackles of uh, 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. and the classroom environment and the ca the capacity um, for that to revolutionize education as opposed to competing with, uh, you know, education or and, and teachers trying to, to keep their attention um, mm -hmm. from these exciting things. So right. what's what's happened even just since the pandemic in terms of attitudes or what, what have you observed? Or... Well, I think there's two things. Um, it, it's been a two-edged sword. On one hand, it's obviously forced a lot of education educators to to really kind of level up their use of technology and to think about engaging ways to to um, to interact with their students as, as more and more teachers have been forced to teach online. Um, so in some ways, that is a positive push forward because we're developing a more tech friendly teacher culture, which only opens up the possibility for incorporating, uh, you know, meaningful technology There's a lot of a lot of use of technology, which is not redundant and, and not particularly suitable, I think, for, for our purposes. But the, the negative side of it has been, and I've seen it with my, you know, I'm a screen-friendly dad, but I would say that I was not comfortable with the level of screen time my kids were getting over the, the pandemic, like over the COVID when we were in lockdown. But it was, I was, you know, I had my back up against the wall because that was their only means of socialization. And, and, and so that they'd be on screen all day with their online classes and then, you know, come four o'clock and we are a family being a screen friendly family. We still did not let our kids use screens from Monday to Friday in, a, in, a, in our kind of more normal school environment or school structure. But once we went online, um, it's either we let them use their screen to interact with their cousins and their friends or nothing, or they were just stuck alone at home without really anybody to play with other than each other. So um, I do feel that it has forced uh, uh, an unhealthy use of screen time. I feel that I, I think that, you know, we are, we've evolved to be multi-sensory creatures, that we should be physical and mental and all these different things. And, and uh, screen activities can be enriching in many ways, but they don't fulfill our full kind of potential as human beings, nor do they stimulate our full potential as human beings. And I do feel that um, the the over-reliance on screens has had a detrimental effect as well. So as most technology, there have been some pluses and some minuses. For me, you know, something that's really exciting about the spatial web is that uh, that I might eventually be freed from the relationship of sitting in front of the computer and the workspace completely being transformed by this combination of digital and physical environments in ways that aren't constrained to uh, looking down at my phone or or sitting at the screen, you know, sitting at a sitting at a desk all the time. Right. So in some ways, there's an opportunity there 
especially in augmented reality gaming, to not spend more time at the computer, which is, I think, what people think of as soon as you say that. That's, that's exactly it. Yeah, we're our, you know, thus far, our relationship with digital material has been confined to the four walls of the screen. Uh, and that which usually means the four walls of wherever we're accessing that screen. But I think this is actually fairly transitional and that we will be moving into a much more fluid relationship with digital material that will more cohesively interact with our physical lives. So I, I actually see this, uh, you know, I think you, you're, you're pointing in that direction that, um, that I think, for example, video games, even video games at home will become more full bodied experiences in that you'll be, you know, you can put on your goggles and stand in the in, in your room. And then if you're drawing a sword, you physically have to draw the sword. And if you're having a sword fight, you could you physically have to move around. And, and uh, you know, we can actually leverage games to incentivize exercise and to incentivize movement and all kinds of things. So. Yeah. Though we, we might right. have a bit of a, yeah, they might have a bit of a um, exit interview notes right. for us on that one. <laughs> on how right. That might, might not be as easy of a sell as we think, but yes. <laughs> well, I, I actually think I, even, you know, uh, you know, these kind of cycling programs where you can, you know, I think Peloton is so that where you can actually create, you know, some kind of a community. I feel that it's, it hasn't, they, there, there hasn't been enough to really, mine the full potential of um, incentivizing exercise with all the all the mechanics that have been proven to incentivize gameplay even beyond zones of comfort right like but gamers will do a lot of arduous and unpleasant activity in order to reach a reward right what they like to call grinding right when you grind in a game you're basically doing some repetitive laborious activity but it's amazing that people will do repetitive, laborious activities because if there's a dopamine hit waiting for them at the end of it, they will they will do what they have to do to get that hit, right? Being users, as you so wisely pointed out. And uh, and so as a result of that, I feel that that same impetus that 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 kind of leads players to do these things in existing games can very well incentivize something which people may deem unpleasant, which is exercise. If you know, you're really intent on beating this boss and you've forgotten that you're actually physically doing something because the problem with exercise in, in the modern world is it's often decontextualized from any meaning, right? right. We, we naturally were fit because just living was exercise, you know, going out, hunting, gathering, walking, all the things that we did in our evolutionary history kept us fit because they were the, the, the kind of necessary things we had to do to survive. Now we've extracted exercise from any significant activity, unless you play sports, but going to the gym and lifting weights or going for runs, it's sort of purposeless, right? And, and, and people are obviously the dopamine that you get from that exercise becomes addictive and a lot of people go down that route, but, uh, and then it becomes a means onto itself, which is, you know, the exercise culture that we have. Mm. But I think what game- but Yeah, most people take it like the, like a pill version of food or something. Right. It's just something you have to do, right? It's, yeah. So what's interesting is that, uh, that, you know, digital stimulation, whether games or otherwise, can actually reinvest meaning in our exercise. And, and therefore, mm. the exercise will be incidental to your goals within a digitally stimulated environment. 
and therefore it won't seem as arduous because, it, like I said, it's incidental to what your goals and objectives are within that digital space. Right. And with algorithms and artificial intelligence and all this type of stuff that reads you, I think that increasingly these digital stimulants will get better at starting you at a level that you're comfortable with, pushing you just enough that you don't get discouraged, and then slowly taking you up the ladder as you're seeing gains, et cetera, et cetera. And the whole time you don't even realize that you're getting fit because you're just invested in whatever the digital lure is. And what's fascinating about that is, is that's, you know, when we look at what game, how games can nourish our understanding of learning, how can nourish learning in general, the, the, the interesting thing is if you watch a, a person play a video game, right? You, you, let's say we were to film somebody playing a game for the first time. So they start and they're starting with some very simple activities because video games are designed to onboard as many people as possible. They don't want to scare you off by something too hard right off the bat. So they're very, very good at getting you to gradually learn something, master that thing, and then move on and amplify what it's asking of you. It's not, it's not forcing you to, it's kind of persuading you to uh, be involved in the process. And what's fascinating is mm. you watch somebody start doing something very simple in a video game and you check in with them three hours later and what they're doing is actually very complex. They've learned a whole sort of repertoire of complicated actions that they have to do in order to succeed at the game. So it is a phenomenal learning tool, not just in terms of learning from the content, but we can learn in terms of how games teach the players to play the game because they're much more efficient. And they, they the same pattern I described with exercise and that you described as well with literacy, where you start small and build up, that's exactly how video games engage players in learning about the game. And the sooner we start using similar sort of tactics or strategies in our own learning, the more we're gonna engage our students and, and better service them in the long run. So one thing that's really important to understand is that there's a difference between gamification and game-based learning. So gamification is typically when you're leveraging the reward structures that contextualize many games in order to extrinsically motivate players. So what that, that includes experience points, levels, badges, you know, any, any of the kind of bells and whistles that say you've leveled up and you feel that sense of accomplishment and that fires a little bit of dopamine in your brain. That is it. So in many ways, you can create something that's not a game at all. Right. It's like giving somebody a gold star for having spelled something properly. That's a form of gamification, right? You're gamifying spelling by creating motivation. They're not motivated to spell. They're motivated to get the gold star and therefore they learn to spell along the way. Now, now extrinsic motivation gets a bit of a bad rap, but it's very effective, right? Um, I know from being a teacher for a long time that some of my best students are very motivated to do well, not for love of the subject, but for love of getting good grades. And, and that does achieve certain ends, right? And, 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 and I'd rather motivate students that way than not motivate them at all. So uh, the other side is game-based learning. So on one hand, you have gamification with the extrinsic reward structures. So a game, so you're teaching somebody to spell by giving them rewards, whether it's money, beans, whatever the case may be. The other side is teaching somebody to, to spell by playing hangman. 
right? That is a, an actual game. Like you're actually playing a game. It's not just the reward structure that surrounds the game. There's an in and of itself, mm. there's an intrinsic fun element to playing Hangman that draws you into wanting to play the game and actually involve yourself in it. So, and, and so the, the game-based learning stuff tends to be more intrinsic. So uh, 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 what I would say is the purest form or the purest manifestation of, let's say, game-based learning would be a game like chess. Chess has absolutely no extrinsic reward mechanism other than winning the game. Um, and but you're 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 incentivized to play because of the challenges and the thinking and all the you know all the reasons why millions and countless of people play and love chess and that and without having levels or experience points or whatever the case may be. So um, so essentially that's that's a very important distinction. Now what 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 do I prefer? I would always take game based learning over gamification because I think there's a deeper there's a it's more connected to the learning in and of itself than these external reward structures. However, what I would would finally say is it's probably a good idea it's probably a good idea to use both um, in, in most of the games that I've designed uh, there's always an extrinsic reward structure and an intrinsic reward structure and 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 they combine to cast ultimately a much wider net right I mean because the nice things about games is that they're they're innately flexible you can build in multiple mechanisms and multiple ways to do things and and so you engage a way larger variety of learners by using both. Those that are actually interested in the material and want to play a game or solve a puzzle, uh, you could address through the you know game-based learning or intrinsic elements. And those who are motivated to get points and gold and equipment and external rewards will then also be uh, incentivized through the external reward. But we must also remember that there's a good argument that video games are the art form of the 21st century. And, and one, of the, one of the reasons I like to bring up to, to validate that idea is that Every art that has ever existed is uh, synthesized in a video game. Dance, theater, film, still photography, you name it. Whatever art form you name me, I'll tell you exactly, you know, music, uh, speech, whatever the case may be, they all converge in the video game, which is the grand digital opera of all possible art forms. So when you think of right. it that way, narrative, of course, narrative, being a story, huge part of all of it, yeah, right? It all, it's yeah. all in there. They, they, it's, it's, all, it's almost the ultimate narrative, media, artistic artifact. Mm. And unfortunately, well, not unfortunately, uh, it has had the, the more popular manifestations of video games have under-leveraged its possibility as an art form. There seems to be a fairly narrow script of shooters, and you know there, 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 there are certain types of video games that do very well on the market, and as a result, they, they take up a disproportionate amount of our mental, social, and cultural space when we think about video games. But the proliferation of indie games, of games that are increasingly experimental games that are doing really interesting things, and as more tools like Unity are made available for people to become empowered as game designers, we're seeing its artistic and expression uh, and, it, and its, um, its potential as, an, as a medium of expression uh, growing enormously. And, and therefore, because its power is a multimedia power, these games in here 
the need for multiple literacies, right? Every one of those art forms, every one of those of those kind of uh, of those narrative forms require a certain amount of literacy and understanding, and and we're not doing a very good job of addressing that. We we have very narrow narrow um, uh, senses of what literacy is and how to address literacy in schools, and we're lagging way behind and not really servicing our students for the much more complex communications world that they live in, and we're still kind of stuck on books and. TV shows, right? Which is which is really primitive compared to the the, the sophistication and complexity of the world that our youth live in. So, a, creating literacy programs that look at, at at multimedia literacy, that engage with media studies and critical media literacy and digital literacy, these are becoming crucial. And and again, in, in Ontario where we live. They're better addressed than most other regions in the world, largely because of the influence of Marshall McLuhan and a series of students that he had that eventually um, had some say in how the ministry uh, constructed its curriculum. And they made a space for English classes to be 25% media studies. So all Ontario high school English classes have to, uh, you know, uh, according to the ministry, should devote 25% of their curricular kind of real estate to media literacy and media studies. And for most English teachers, I hate to say it because they feel like the last guardians of the written word and they often resist interactive media. That's changing as we have younger people and more open-minded people becoming English teachers. But it typically means watching the film version of the book. And that that covers you for the 25% media literacy that should be part of the program. But what we're missing out on, this is where you have your students watch Netflix and watch Dear White People and think about what the issues of race are to see how women are being represented, whether violence has an effect or not, has an, you know, violence in media has any effect on our lives and behaviors. These are the big questions, you know, um, questions of race and racial represent, all of these big questions that have to be addressed that are a huge part of what our, our, our youth are consuming, this is the space that has been created to address those issues, and we are not doing a good job of using that space. So I'm going to make the assumption that that's use. what you mean when you're talking about that kind of critical thinking, right? Is just starting with starting with what is actually the popular culture, like what is what they're actually immersed in, um, and then uh, and then you know helping them asking them questions and helping them ask questions of themselves or of the content around you know how these how the meaning is constructed essentially within within these environments, right? Exactly, and what's really important is the toolbox that you apply to any one medium or media mm. become universally applicable. So with my GTA 5 study, what many of my students said when I surveyed them at the end and I kind of informally polled them at the end was that they wouldn't just think differently about race in GTA 5. They became more attuned as to how race is represented in all media. They didn't just become, you know, aware of these bikini-clad women defining, you know, femininity and womanhood in GTA 5, but they started becoming more aware of how women are represented in all media. So the advantage of meeting them where they are, whether GTA 5 or Netflix or Snapchat or whatever the case may be, is that the tools and the ways that you teach them to think critically about about that particular media 
artifact then can become universalized and they become critical thinkers for all media. Oh, yes, <laughs> that's, that's the good stuff, uh, putting in the time up front to make sure that they are, you know, critically thinking about um, the history and the context of all of these representations before going out and proliferating more of them or, you know, like, so, you know, mm -hmm. making even more of them where like, you know, people are quick to recognize these guys are media makers. We live in a participatory landscape, but then they're not like, how are we going to get them to make different media? You know, as these mediums become more accessible uh, and they're no and they're not written all by the same people, right? The people that they were first that were first attracted to them, that it will radically change because all these other voices will, will no longer be shaping uh what is produced, right? Like what is produced and circulated. Well, that's it. That's exactly, you nailed it again. That's exactly right. So, uh, you know, we had a Hollywood system that was dominated by male writers and, and, and writers tend to write about what they're comfortable with. And what we've seen is, is a complete transformation of the types of shows and the types of identities being showcased in mainstream media in the last 10 years. We're seeing gay couples. We're seeing, you know, non-traditional, non-heteronormative families. We're seeing um, a whole series of nuanced lives, more focus on women and strong women characters. Um, and, and, and all of that is because more women are being allowed to write. More women are entering this, the, you know, this fear, but also because of increased awareness at the university level and classes that are creating critical thinking around these issues, a lot of the writers, directors, and producers that are going out have a sense of social responsibility in the media that they produce. Because this is the big question is, on one hand, media reflects the world that we live in, right? Uh, but on the other hand, media also, I believe, has a duty to project a vision of the world we want to live in, right? And 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 I think that 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 there's a you know there's a lot to be said about both those. But but the more that we start creating a media landscape with uh, you know black women presidents, right, and boardrooms that are dominated by women, not just men, and 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 the more we plant it, because this is media is the spell that governs human behavior. I mean, we're seeing elections being changed because of manipulation of the media. Through, if we cast a persuasive vision of our future through media, we will likely tend in that direction. And, and as a result of that, the more the media creators have a huge responsibility in terms of shaping our future. And I have to ask, of course, about the role of the artist, you know, and the STEM and STEAM mm -hmm. um, and this kind of idea that we need to double down on the tech but that we need to somehow not do it from a creator, from a creative space in terms of the role of the arts in all of this. Yeah, so so that's really important. So I one of the things that I really advocate for is I, I like the idea of a teacher artist, right? Where where the the, the primary engine is creativity. And I, I, I conceive of myself in that way. I like to think of myself as an artist uh, as much and if not even more than a teacher. I think a lot of the, the games that I design, they're not commercially driven enterprises. They are expressions of their critiques, their expressions, their, their, their manifestations of myself outwardly. Even the curriculum that I work around video games, I see as an art form. Um, and, and, and I've seen the power of that, right? Because what it's allowed me to do is, is quite genuinely disrupt the traditional templates of education and, and the way that we've been conditioned to think about teaching and learning, which is in my mind absurd, right? And, 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 and what, what really, what made me think, you know, something I hadn't thought about when you were talking is that as, as we, we can't compete 
with the advent of artificial intelligence. We just can't. And, and even, interestingly enough, creatively, we might get outplayed by AI. That, that AI will replicate, it'll be so complex that they'll be able to paint more, uh, you know, an, a, a computer will paint a painting that will bring tears to my eyes, right? And, and, and it's almost implying that by creating art, if we can't beat AI, then why are we doing it, right? Right. And what's being yeah. lost is- Even when I, they beat us, I'll still be making art. Right. And I'm sure engineers will still be making things as well. Why? Right? Even if all the content on Netflix is generated by an algorithm. Right. <laughs> You know, I'll still be making things. Right. And why? I'll have to. Why would you still be making things? I don't know how to not do it. <laughs> right. And, and it's because it's incredibly fulfilling, mm. right? That what may happen is that increasingly it'll start pushing back on our values, which I think are a little bit skewed. And, and everything about the media, because the media is a spectacle, we then value our participation in that spectacle. Like, what? how am I contributing to the spectacle? How am I the star of, of this particular contribution to the spectacle? Um, and, and, and increasingly moving away from that and actually seeing it more as fulfillment, as, as a self-nourishing uh, part of your life, as opposed to one where you're soliciting approval based on the work that you produce. What you are talking about earlier in terms of XR, you know, and sensors and the internet of things like reading our emotions and, 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 and therefore changing the content, et cetera. Steam is no longer, these are no longer separate things, right? That media companies are melding with neuroscience and, you know, all these other things to the point where you can no longer distinguish them in terms mm -hmm. of how these media are being generated, like you were talking about in terms of a beautiful painting. Here's my thesis on that one. So there's an argument that all media are an extension of our dreams. That the role that dreams had in our past, these narrative, visual, audiovisual narratives that, that, that would visit us at night, we've now externalized through technology and we're dreaming with eyes wide open. When we're playing games or living in you know Netflix, all of this is, and again, very McLuhan thinking where all of our technology is an extension of ourselves. And I would, I would venture to say that the entertainment industry is an extension of our dream faculty. Uh, it, it has that hallucinatory element. Sometimes the, the pliability, the, the archetypal nature, all of these elements that constitute dreams are apparent in, in our media industry. And what we're, what we're pushing towards, you know, I was saying earlier, we live in media, is increasingly we are going to be living in our dreams. Our dreams will not be living in us. We are going to be living in our dreams. And the surrealism that he's pointing to is that, that, that when we live in our, with augmented reality, with virtual reality, the plasticity of those environments and the ability that, that to, to cast into the realm of surrealism, um, I, I do believe that the end game of this whole kind of media spectacle will be our living inside of our dreams and a fluid dreamlike existence that, 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 will, that will be normalized as, as part of our daily life. Uh, what will like if you were worlding in a simulation of of the future of education, um, because you do talk about reimagining um, education is so, yeah. Um, so what's interesting is my belief is a few things. One is that it will be far more fractured and diverse than it currently is. So we have a single model now, which is go to school, uh, you know, sit in classes, you have a teacher, you finish your day, you go home. That's now been challenged by the online model because of our current health crisis. 
Um, but what I feel is going to happen is we have proliferations of different educational models. We have, you know, homeschooling, non-schooling, alternative schools, uh, and, and we've seen a bit of this. But I feel that increasingly there's going to be a far, far more dynamic um, range of educational possibilities that are all simul and and the way that that could be managed is if you have you know artificial intelligence is the is the going to be the nuclear bomb and the nuclear energy of the next you know the next while it's gonna it's gonna have extremely detrimental effects on society and extremely positive effects on society and hopefully we'll survive it but one of the things that artificial intelligence can do is uh, draw data from a variety of different experiences right and and, and manage a variety of different experiences. So what that what that does is it allows for every individual to have a unique learning path, which could mean today I'm scheduled to meet this individual at a ravine, and we're going to go find examples of certain types of mushrooms, and I'm going to identify them using an app that you just kind of put it against the mushroom, and it tells you what it is, and I'm going to add it to my inventory, and then I'm going to come home, and I have my inventory of mushrooms, and I'm going to do a study using Google Maps of what a mushroom appeared where and why they're growing in this particular region to figure out which are endemic, which are introduced. Is this a problem for the environment? That could be an assignment, right? All of that will be packaged digitally so that whatever the outcome of that will be added to your profile as a learner. This person now understands this and this about mushrooms, has done this kind of investigative thinking, has written this type of report, while simultaneously somebody else is sitting in a classroom conducting a lab experiment. Well, simultaneously, somebody else is apprenticeship, having an apprenticeship in a law office. And all of these different experiences will be measurable in terms of what kind of learning is taking place. And what it starts doing is developing a granular profile of the individual and all the things that they've done. To, and, and, and so that it's not like the ham-fisted rubric and report card, like your entire university career is a grade, right? Like one number, it's, it's almost a joke. Right. Um, and, and rather, you'll have a very detailed understanding of, you know, these are the skills the person learned. These skills are eroding because it's been five years since they've used an electron microscope. So they've got to kind of, you know, get leveled up on that again. But they're most recently have learned how to speak Spanish, understand how to undertake this kind of thing. And what it'll do is that you can actually do things that are part of your normal life. And that will be added to your educational kind of profile. And so what we'll have is a very dynamic and not necessarily institutionally based learning environment. Because if we remember, if we go back to the origin of our species, learning wasn't something that happened separately from life. Learning was a fluid part of being part of a community. Right. So you children in, in tribes would very early on contribute to their community with a variety of tasks while simultaneously learning how to be better contributors to their community. It wasn't like they were taken aside and, and under a tree, they would spend days learning lessons. No, just by accompanying their parents and their various endeavors during the day, they would start learning by diffusion all the different. And, and I would like to return to that, to be perfectly honest with you. I don't want learning to be institutionalized and separate from day to day life. Life. How can we have young people become fluid members of our community, not separated in an incubator for 25 years before they actually start contributing to their community, but being contributing members and active members of their community from the from the you know from very early on? How do we keep measurable data on how they're contributing and how do we 
uh, shape their learning experience within their community contributions. And all of that can be managed with artificial intelligence, with digital information, with AI, um, which sounds a little bit of, you know, kind of a, a techno-utopian view of things. And I don't necessarily believe that. But, but you know, the way that schools are structured now very much reflect the operations of the factory. Right. Every every element, the uniformity, the, the, the fact that you're mass producing a single object over and over and over again, all those signatures of the factory are all over our education system. Every aspect of the way that we educate our kids follows the model of the factory. The factory is a paradigm because it was the central means of production during the Industrial Revolution. Now, the central means of production in our current age is, of course, the computer and the computer unlike the factory, doesn't operate on models of duplication, uniformity, and mass production. It does operate in mass production, but it individuates how each person receives information. It individuates and invites participation in a way that factories don't invite participation, right? So even film as a product of the factory is spectatorial. It follows an assembly line format. So if our education system thus far has reflected the factory, which has been the dominant paradigm for the last 500 years, the new education system is going to start adopting the qualities of the computer and similarly be structured in that individuated basis and start reflect. And for better or for worse, there are elements about that that we're not going to be good. We're not arriving at a utopia or a magic bullet. But I do feel um, that that it, it, it will be a bit more liberating from the current constraints that I think um, uh, embody the worst of our industrial education systems. Amazing, Paul. Well, I'm so glad um, uh, that, you, that you're in classrooms and uh, I'm so glad that you talked to me today. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Yeah, I think you, you did a great job of, of drawing out pretty much everything I have to say. So you've, <laughs> you've, you've exhausted the well. Well done. Thank you, Karen. And thanks for listening to this episode of We Make Media. Join me for the next episode when I speak with Emmy Award-winning web documentarian Katarina Sizik about her research with the co-creation studio at MIT's Open Documentary Lab. Until then, stay creative and do be artists.